Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles, California. On each episode, we talk with a biographer about his or her work. Before the world became entranced and enmeshed with modern technology and what we once called cyberspace, Stuart Brand blazed trails on those seemingly unimaginable frontiers. His name might not be well known outside the rarefied world that we now call Silicon Valley, though his Whole Earth catalog or his pioneering online community The Well remain touchstones for some. The Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times writer John Markoff, himself a pioneer in the chronicling of technology's dazzling ascent, has captured Brand and his wide-ranging influence in a new biography, Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand, published by Penguin Press on March 22, 2022. I spoke with John Markoff via Zoom on January 25, 2022, in advance of the book's publication. He's principally known for the Whole Earth Catalog, but he's been an interesting character who's played a role in the culture for more than half a century. Everything from the Whole Earth Catalog, which was this kind of Sears Roebuck for the counterculture, I'm not sure how to really describe it. Uh, Steve Jobs described it as Google before Google. Um, I think it was more of a serendipity engine. When I began this project, I started telling people that I was working on it, And I can't tell you how many times I'd run into people who would find something in the catalog and their life would go in some orthogonal direction. It really opened up the world to a lot of people because at that point, information was scarce. It was hard to find out about things. And Stuart curated a list, a growing list, initially over just three years. The catalog was around from 68 to 71. It won the National Book Award in 72, but he closed it down. Um, because it was it was taking its toll on him personally, both on his marriage and and um, he was very sort of depressed about everything when he left it initially. But it had a big impact on the culture. And Stuart was known for that. And then after that, he, you know, he saw himself as upper class, although I think it's a much more complex uh, discussion. But um, he did have some money from his family during the 60s and 70s, just enough to not have to get a day job. And so that allowed him to follow his interests. And he was a very curious guy. And then he did a series of things, many related to computing uh, in Silicon, around, he was never in Silicon Valley. He left the Bay Area in 1971 and never really came back, but he settled in Sausalito and he's been there ever since. He lives on a, not a houseboat, but a boat, a large tugboat, working tug, what was once a working tugboat called the Myrene. He likes to say um, he, he lives small so he can live smart, so he can live large. Live small so you can live large is one of his aphorisms. I asked John, who grew up in the Bay Area, if he remembered the very first time he met or heard about Brand. He said both. When I was in college, I would occasionally drop into the Whole Earth Truck Store, which was in Menlo Park. And it was a curious place, which had interesting things. And um, I was not a super counterculture person, but I was very political and it had... It had mostly books, but it had various sort of tools and clothing and stuff. And it was it was there right across from the train station in Menlo Park. And in this 
part of Menlo Park, which was sort of a center for the Mid-Peninsula counterculture. The Mid-Peninsula Free University office was across the street. Um, the International for Foundation for Advanced Study had been, been around the corner, which was a place that was taking people on LSD, experimental LSD trips in the early 60s. Um, Rampart's office had been a couple blocks away previously. So it was this interesting, and Kepler's bookstore, which was this institution on the peninsula was there too. So it was, there was a, a sense of place. Um, the first time I actually saw him was many years later. Um, I hadn't met him. I had just become a reporter at a new weekly publication called InfoWorld, which was the first weekly for the personal computer industry in the 1980s. I was covering a computer show called Comdex in Las Vegas, which was an annual event. And um, I guess it was a party in the evening held by the Epson printer uh, division. And uh, I was standing in front of the largest bowl of cooked shrimp I'd ever seen in my life. And I looked up and there was Stuart standing on the other side. And I sort of said, oh, I get it. Cause here, you know, we'd both been pulled into this strange world and we both come out of the, I came out of more of politics, but kind of counterculture and, and Stuart had too. And so I sort of saw what was going on. And, and, and um, then he, began, you know, as I reported on Silicon Valley, Stuart was, you know, he was, there was a period where he sort of acted as a futurist he spent years as a business consultant for uh, sort of uh, for a group called Global Business Net Global Business Network, GBN, and I would frequently uh, call him as a when I was working as a reporter. So we sort of had a lot of contact over many years. Fast forward to John's decision to write Brand's biography, prompted by his friend Kevin Kelly, the founding editor of the magazine Wired, and himself a former editor at the Whole Earth Catalog. It was a coincidence of events. I had decided to leave the New York Times at some point during 2016. Um, there was a buyout on the table, and uh, they wanted me to continue to write about artificial intelligence, and I was done with writing with AI. And so, and uh, he had been, Rand had been thinking himself of writing an autobiography for a number of years. And he, you know, he was at this point, he was 78. He decided he didn't have the energy, which was not true. He had plenty of energy. He just didn't want to muck around in his own life, which I understand. You know, I was interested because it was I'm I'm fascinated by stuff that happened in uh, the region that would become Silicon Valley in the 60s and 70s, and his life for for a period of his life centered upon that. And I, you know, I'd written histories before; I'd never tried to write a biography, so it was it was new to me. But he was an open book; he was very welcoming, and so it was an easy um, you know. He didn't ask any control. He was completely transparent. Brand had given his papers to Stanford, though not all of them. Over the course of the next 18 months, John talked with him 76 times for hours at a clip. It, we got into this pattern. I would go to his office in Sausalito weekly. Um, and we generally spend the morning and often talk at lunch, too. So it was like three or four hours a week for a year and a half, which is, and, you know, partially... I was uh, I was way unstructured. I you know I would come with a list of questions or interests at a certain period, and you know what I found out um, almost from the moment I started to talk to him. You know, here's a guy who's 78 years old who has a reasonable memory, but these are I'm asking about things that happened 50 years ago, and he would frequently say, you know, you should ask X about this, or you know, nobody was around, everybody had died, and so. Um, I immediately discovered uh, the value of contemporaneous documents. And so, um, and, and I was lucky because Stuart turned out to be a pack rat, a real pack rat. 
Um, and he had thrown things into, actually it was a shipping container that, that right next to his office on the Sausalito waterfront. It was actually his landlord had this idea that he was going to do something innovative with shipping containers. So, so he'd been collecting shipping containers, if you can imagine that. And Stuart took them over at various points. And one of them he used just to toss stuff in. So when the Stanford librarians came, they took away uh, a lot of stuff, not everything. He has what I think of as a small office just crammed with books. And then there's a back half of the office. And he'd frequently go back there. And he had his photographs there. And he had other papers and writings that he hadn't given more recent stuff he gave you know he gave at that point it was up through 2000 um that he gave to the stanford library plus plus stuff there was stuff that he didn't give that i would find from time to time and, and i also i served as a vehicle i got to know the librarians who were curating his stuff well because stanford has a special collection there's a wonderful um place and I was a regular visitor. I was in there three or four times a week. As most biographers do, John found the sheer volume of information overwhelming. The hardest thing is not getting completely lost in the amount of material you have and organizing the material, staying on top of it, trying to figure out what's worthwhile, what's not. He His collection fell into some categories. His journals, there was this funny story about his journals. In 2000, I was working on another book called What the Dormouse Said, and Stuart had just given his papers, and I was interested in his early role in, in the prehistory of Silicon Valley. And another uh, sort of uh, Fred Turner, a Stanford communications professor who had written a book, who would ultimately write a book called From Counterculture to Cyberculture, which focused on a little bit of Stuart's life around the well, which was an online service that started in the mid 80s. So we both were in there immediately looking at Stuart's journals. And I was looking for one specific thing. Um, I was not trying to read his entire journals at that point. Um, I was looking in, in, in the role he played at the Stanford Research Institute and this demonstration, technical demonstration that Doug Engelbart, the inventor of the mouse, gave in, in the late 1960s. And I was disappointed because there was no reference to it. So I spent a couple of days at that point. And then 20 years later, I come back and the journals are gone and they've been replaced by Xerox copies that have been censored to, to uh, basically uh, you with black pen to take out all of his girlfriend's names, which was just driving me nuts because it was impossible to, there was a period after the, between his two marriages in the sixties and seventies, you know what it was like. And he was very much going down that path. Ultimately not a lot of that stuff shows up in the biography, but I had to, I had to go through it all. And so finally Stuart went to the head librarian and said, said, why did you do this? And so the journals came back and I, I know the librarian who had to read them and do that. And the poor guy, I had to do all that work. But anyway, that was, so there were the journals, he kept his correspondence. So there was a, a, a lot of letters and then there was all kinds of related documents, sort of ephemera. And um, I began, you know, I, this is the first time I tried to do this kind of extended research project. I began to try to organize it using a, a piece of software called Evernote, uh, which is a web service and a document. And, it, you know, it's great, but I overwhelmed Evernote. Um, if you have 16 gigabytes of stuff and I was copying, I was in there copying everything. So every day I would be in there and, um, you know, it's great when you have typed material because they do OCR on it. And so you can search it after the fact that was really quite powerful. Um, you know, when I was in there before 20 years ago, I took notes on everything. 
now I was moving quickly and I was reading and I was, I, I used an, I used an iPhone, the iPhone technology got better and the OCR technology got better. I mean, I wish I could do this two years from now because there's so much technology change going on that the tools that, um, that biographers will have are getting better. They're not getting better quickly enough though. And they weren't getting better enough for me. Um, for example, um, Stuart had more than half a million email. Um, and that was only from the more recent period of his life. You know, there was a point, it was in a way it's sad because clearly there was this transition in the culture from communicating with paper mail to communicating with email. And I could see that. And the email, I mean, it's good, it's all there, but it's just an overwhelming set of documents. And Stanford has created a tool. There are a number of open source tools that extract information like place, and proper names and categories from email. And that can make it, you know, you're dealing with a million of anything. Uh, you know, I, Caro's dictum of turn every page, I believe in it, but there's no way you're gonna read every email. It's just, uh, you, you can't do it in a reasonable period of time. And, and I wondered how you were doing it. You're doing it on a screen? Um, I had the corpus, I had the, it's, the, there are various um, formats and most email these days is kept in something called the inbox. And so I could move it to my machine. I could read it with my email program, but that was like being lost in the, in the stacks. And so you process it with this software and then you can find some patterns. Now it's not as good as it should be. This will get much better. I mentioned when I talked to the New York Times alumni that Google has released a tool called Pinpoint for investigative journalists. And I think it would be, I think it, it has one more advantage. I mean, it, it does its own attempt at organizing and extracting what's called semantic information. Um, and the problem was I, I was finished by the time Pinpoint was available. I was writing. So it was a little too late for me, which was very frustrating. And I did decide not to go back and put everything into it because that, that would have delayed me even further. But um, for people doing stuff in the future, the tools will continue to get better. And um, oh, so one of the things that Pinpoint does is they take a stab at doing optical character recognition on handwritten documents. And so you only get one word in three. Um, that's still, and usually it's neat because they do a better job, not on common words, but on unusual words. Mm. And so, you know, names and places and weird things you can often extract. And so it's a little bit of a help. Um, and at some point they'll be better, I think. How did you manage it? Did it did it get overwhelming sometimes, or were you did you have to constantly you constantly had to go back to some theme? Yeah, so the theme changed. Um, you know, I I had started well. First of all, there are about a couple dozen books that tell parts of Stuart's life in various ways, and I've I've looked at all of them, and everybody uses Stuart's uh, life to make a point. Everybody's got, you know, Stuart, Stuart, you know, either good or bad or indifferent. He's, he's, he's been chronicled, but not, by, but not by a biographer many times. And so I looked at all that and I thought, well, I'm going to try to let his story stand on its own the best I can. I have my own agendas. There's no question about that. But I was trying to just tell the story for good or ill because, um, you know, I, I, I didn't want to try to, to force Stuart into my frame of reference. And, you know, broadly speaking, there, there, there's some cultural stuff. Stuart was a child of the 1950s. He was part of what's called the silent generation. I was clearly a baby boomer. And I was really sensitive to the different ways we looked at the world. I mean, um, 
in college, I ran directly into the women's liberation movement, and that had a big effect on me. Um, Stuart preceded that, and so I could see that he saw the world in the way that somebody who grew up in the 50s still, you can't, there's certain things you can't shed. And uh, so I was, I was aware of that. He was still active when I, was, when I began this in the beginning of 2017. He, you know, his life wasn't over. I was dealing with someone who was not only still alive, but was still doing things in the world. At one point, the documentary uh, group, because of the Revive and Restore organization, and uh, George Church, the Harvard uh, microbiologist, you know, who's trying to revive the woolly mammoth, they had this adventure um, to Siberia, and they wanted to film it. And I looked at that and I, I wanted to go, but I thought I've decided on ending this book in 2011 and this is after. And so, you know, it's probably, it's, you know, Stuart's still alive and well and other people will tell that story. I'm not telling that story. So there were things I threw out at the end in his life. I started with a notion about Stuart and, uh, and California because I, I really do think that, that there is that kind of, he had that kind of impact on the world, sort of taking that California culture and translating it. I, I sort of moved away from that. And I think that his, his stuff around computing and, the, and the, the forces that shaped Silicon Valley were more the focus of what I wrote in the end. Um, and it wasn't so much, a, I didn't focus it on this idea that I had when I first started. And is that one of the agendas? Yeah, I guess it was an agenda. It was a perspective on, on, on his impact on the world. You know, I, 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 I came away with a sense that the, the, the thing that surprised me, and this is from, there was one journal that he kept in 1967, right before he, 67 and 68, right before he started the whole catalog in the fall of 68, that he pulled out of the back office one day. And it was what I called the lost journal because it was the key to a lot of things for me. And it hadn't been in the original uh, journals collection that was given to Stanford. And it was really a surprise to me in the sense that you know, Silicon Valley was largely, it was named in 1971, but all of the forces that work, that were at work, that led it to become Silicon Valley were around for the prior decade. And that was the decade that Stuart was around and creating the whole catalog. And when I realized without going into too much detail is that the catalog came out of the same forces that created Silicon Valley. And they took those that worldview and it had an impact on an American culture long before anybody realized. That was the sort of the surprise takeaway for me. Uh, and that was it's a rethink. You know, if, if you if you think about the whole earth catalog today, everybody thinks about hippies and back to the land and the counterculture. That's not what was going on. Um, what was going on was, you know, Stuart um, had he was involved briefly in the in the, the creation of a, of a of a commune in New Mexico, but he immediately realized he had no interest in living, uh, you know, in a back to the land kind of existence. So he came back specifically to the Mid Peninsula because of the technology stuff that was happening, and 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 what you know, and, and that worldview in the whole Earth catalog, access to tools, which was a partially a Buckminster Fuller idea, partially a Doug Engelbart idea. You know, if you want to change the world, give someone a tool. And, you know, that's very controversial today. Um, you know, people refer to Stuart as the first technological utopian. Um, I think he would call himself a technological pragmatist. Um, you know, he is very much a technological optimist, but I don't think he's completely blinded. Um, 
but he has been labeled as a technological utopian. And, but that view of the power of tools is something that filtered out into the culture way before people realized in, in, in ways that, and had an impact in ways that they don't, they don't realize. That, all of what you've just said ties into what I'd love to sort of sum up with, which it, it must be so interesting for you as a historian to reflect back on this time that you've chronicled you know, many of us as historians are writing or biographers are writing about periods of time that we did not inhabit, but you've inhabited this time <laughs> that well, you've been, that, that you're now reflecting on. Yeah, yes, is, yes and no. I mean, one of, the, one of the reasons I wrote the earlier book, Dormouse, is because I was away in the Northwest for 10 years from 1967 to 1977, and I was trying to figure out what happened while I was gone. So, I mean, I was around, I was around a lot, but I was, you know, the, the Silicon Valley emerged while, while I was away and I wanted to figure out why. So, but yes, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in particularly because there was, you know, technology and culture and politics came out of the area where I grew up and the echoes of that are still defining American politics today. I mean, I think of Trumpism as a reaction in some way to, to the kinds of things that were that were basically emerged from from the Bay Area in the in the in the 1960s. Yes, no, and that's what I mean when I say you've witnessed it. Not maybe it, the the dates don't necessarily line up exactly, but to to have seen the seeds then and the perspectives then about technology and culture and politics and everything, and now today where it's then it was it felt tangential except if you were involved with it, and now it's just inescapable. It's in everybody's. Yeah, social media, for example, has, has you know those those companies came came out of a particular generation of Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah, no, and how I'm talking, just the fact that I'm talking to you <laughs> yeah. this way. So. Well, yeah, but the <laughs> funny thing is that this is now routine. But uh, Doug Engelbart showed this technology off to the thousand best computer scientists in the world for the first time in the fall of '68. So it was part of that, you know, hypertext, which became the web, the mouse, which became the way we use computers. All of that came. At a, at a certain time in a certain place. Right, right. And now you've summed it, summed it up in this one person. I hope it was gratifying for you to, to do that. <laughs> well, it took a few years off my life, but yeah, it was, I'm glad I did it. And, uh, you know, he's, he's an interesting man. He's had a, a life that's had an impact on the world. And I hope that it's fun to read it. That's John Markoff, author of the book Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand, published by Penguin Press in March 2022. I spoke with him via Zoom. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles, California. Alani Hodge created our theme music. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>